Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Any Monday Podcast. My name is Colin Hemphill. And I'm Kayla Hemphill. On our show, we roll the virtual dice each week and must watch a randomly selected anime title. Thanks for joining us today. We made it back. We did. Hope you enjoyed that short Q&A we posted last week. Uh, we were out of town, but we did have time to at least put that together. Yeah. Last week, we hit the random button on Crunchyroll, and the heroic spirit summoned before us is called Fate Stay Night. Fate Stay Night was originally an adult visual novel released in 2004 by Type Moon, and it was re-released uh, a couple of times with various levels of censorship to make it accessible to a larger audience. In 2006, it was adapted into both a manga series and a 24-episode anime series, and then a film adaptation in 2010. Finally, there was a new anime series released in 2014 titled Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works. And this is the particular version that we watched. It focuses on the second route of the visual novel, which is, uh, as the title says, called the Unlimited Blade Works route. There is another route called Heaven's Feel, which was also adapted into a film trilogy. And these are just the works that are based on the original Fate Stay Night. Uh, this one VN has spun up a whole franchise worth of stuff, uh, a cinematic universe, you might say, <laughs> called uh, the Fate series or the Type Moon universe, depending on where you're looking. Uh, Type Moon being the name of the studio that released the game. Uh, additionally, there was a sequel visual novel called Fate Hollow at Raxia, and a prequel series called Fate Zero, which has both manga and anime adaptations, as well as three fighting games, an RPG for the PSP, a mobile game called Fate Grand Order, which also has adaptations, and so on and so on. I'm like, I have to get this mobile game. I've, I've heard people play that. <laughs> we watched the first two episodes of the Unlimited Blade Works anime, which each of them is about an hour long. That's why we split it up a little bit. And to keep things simple, I think we'll just refer to this series as Fate for the duration of this episode. Sounds good. Yeah. Kayla, would you like to tell us about the plot? Yes. At the onset of the Fifth Holy Grail War, seven mages prepare for battle by summoning powerful servants in order to attain their ultimate wish. Shiru Imiya and Rin Tosaka are classmates who become part of this war, but their desire to win isn't all that it appears. Can they, along with their servants, survive, or will they be lost to the Holy Grail War as many mages who have gone before them? So I figure for this one, we kind of start off with talking about the story, because it's pretty complex there's a lot going on and really in these first two episodes we don't meet a whole lot of characters it's really kind of focused on these two characters and as you mentioned in the plot synopsis their servants yep um so to touch on unlimited blade works again which uh makes this distinct from the other versions of this show and the different adaptations uh, this route in the game kind of focuses on Shiro, who is our main character, and his interactions with Rin, who is the other one you mentioned. The alternate routes, they kind of just flip who the other person is. Hmm. So it wouldn't be Rin in those cases. Hmm. Um, 
So you can go watch the other versions of this anime, and it has less focus on her. Hmm. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about this Holy Grail War, which is kind of tying everything together. It's a doozy. So this war happens every so often. They don't really say how frequently it happens because sometimes it takes a few generations and sometimes it takes only 10 years, which is what is going on with this war is it has only been 10 years since the last one. Right. And each time there's a war, there are seven mages that summon seven different classes of servants in order to fight to the death. Yeah. For the Holy Grail. Right. And and so I guess the the appeal is that the Holy Grail, whatever it is, it they seem kind of unclear on if it's like a physical, actual, the Holy Grail, or if it's more of like a, a source of magic just in general. Um, but this is the fifth Holy Grail War. And like you said, the last one was 10 years ago. And up to this point, nobody has actually gotten their wish fulfilled. Mm-hmm. They've either been killed in the process or for whatever reason, unable to actually obtain the magic from the grail. Yeah, apparently there's specific requirements that the grail has, but it's not clear what those are. Right. You just have to be deemed worthy by the grail. Yeah. And so they they summon these servants to help them out. And kind of what they, they say is that it's advantageous to just go for the master because the master is probably a powerful mage they have some sort of magical abilities but they are nowhere near as powerful as the servants that they summon right they're they're still human uh so let's talk a little about the seven different classes the types that they can summon are the archer the lancer the saber the berserker the caster assassin and writer and each of those kind of fits the general like rpg sort of classes it's pretty similar kind of stuff yeah and so each mage will only claim one of the classes so there can't be more than one type out in the world and they pick from people, heroes from the past that are specifically skilled in those kind of fighting styles. Right. I guess they don't have to be heroes. Some of them aren't actually good people. But heroes in the sense that... historical beings. Yes, yes. Heroes in the sense that they are excellent at whatever class that they fall into. Right. So they haven't really revealed specific identities at this point in the show Mm -hmm. Um, but from what I understand they can be like they can be more of a a legendary sort of character um, like a you know Greek mythology sort of character Mm -hmm. or they can be a real historical figure and whoever it is is going to be like if they're a saber class they'll probably be a great swordsman Mm -hmm. Uh, for me the concept of the holy grail being used in this is radically different than what I'm used to seeing in Western adaptations of the story of the Holy Grail. Um, I'm sure a lot of us think of like the Indiana Jones and things like that. 
so it's it's kind of refreshing to see something so radically different. Because um, I think in a lot of times in our Western media, we see a lot of um, immortality being given by the Holy Grail. And this isn't inherently that. It's something magical and is wish granting is kind of seems to be the the power behind it. The other thing I like about it is that it's not Shenron from Dragon Ball, where it's built up as like this super powerful wish granting thing, Mm -hmm. and then they just use it like all the time. Yes. And it loses its power because, well, nobody actually dies. They can just wish for them back. Right. In this case, we've proven that people, like a lot of people have died in these wars, and nobody has actually won the grail. Yeah. Yeah, so it still actually holds weight. And uh, and so what they talk about is that the previous war from 10 years ago basically leveled a city. Yep. Like completely burned it to the ground. And our main character is somebody who survived that. I think he was like the only person that survived it. Yeah. It seemed it, like. That we know of so yeah. far. Uh, the other thing I would mention about the war and the servants and this whole kind of thing is that they have command seals, mm. which once they summon a servant, a master is granted three command seals. And these are basically sealed parts of their magical abilities uh, that like leaves an imprint on their skin somewhere. And you can actually see them um, as they're used and how many they have left and stuff like that. And when they use one, they can exert their will on their servants. Uh, no questions asked, like the servant can't overcome the the magic being used to will them to do something. Mm-hmm. And it's important that whatever the master commands, that it's specific, because the more broad it is, the less power it has. So if you command something very specific, then it has a more hold on the servant than if you say something like very general. So if you give something that's like a little too broad, then then the servant might, you know, it's more influence than obedient. And the other thing that they're capable of doing is you can command your servant to appear. Mm-hmm. And if your servant isn't nearby and you're in huge trouble, this is your opportunity to use one to summon them. Yeah. Um, And it really seems like you only have two, like you have three total, but once you use the last one, you're basically out. Yep. Yeah. And when you're out, like you're no longer in the war and you can't, it seems like you can't really command your, your servant anymore and maybe you'll survive the war, but you, you definitely won't win it. Yeah, and and speaking of survival, part of this is, like, the church, which is kind of a little odd. Um, They haven't gotten into a whole lot of detail on that, but there's kind of, like, this group that organizes the war when when they know that the Grail is going to appear and that the war is coming up. They, I, I don't know, I guess they're in charge of finding masters or... Overseeing them? Somehow overseeing, making sure they follow by some loose rules that they've established. Maybe. And if a master chooses to exit the war or 
they've used all their command seals, the church is able to like try to help protect them. Yeah, I think if you go to the church, there's some sort of sanctuary that you can get there. It's it's sort of like a none of the other masters can can or should come and hunt you there. Right. Yeah, it seems like one of the loose rules. Yeah. One of the probably most important parts about this war is that it's not inherently known by the rest of the world that this is going on. That's something that the church takes care of, too, is that they make sure that the exposure to the rest of the world is unaware. It's minimized. And so um, a general rule is that if a human, a non-mage human sees something, that they have to be killed. Right. They have to be taken out, which is pretty brutal. I I appreciate it that it's not doing the whole like you know um men in black mind wipe thing like there are actual real consequences that these characters have to deal with about exposing the people around them to this war that they kind of have to fight you know once they're enlisted into it and so there's real consequences for what they're doing yeah and the reverse of that is interesting too because Each of the masters and each of the servants has different motivations for why they're seeking the grail and going through this really dangerous process to try to achieve it. And we've only seen a little bit of conversation about uh, what the characters are interested in, but the lengths that they're going to in order to to find this um, is, is an interesting aspect of that as well yeah kind of touching back to what we said a a little bit ago it's pretty unclear what links they're allowed to go to uh something that i find kind of interesting is that different mages summon their servants at different times it doesn't inherently all happen all at once um at least it seems like it you know there might be a few days like spread out um, as as far as we can tell. And so it seems strange that whoever, whichever mage summons whatever servant, that they have to wait around for the other mages. I guess, like, I don't know. If I was going to be that cutthroat, I would think, like, you take out all the mages that you know because it seems like a lot of mages know each other's families and are aware of what other mages are around Yeah, and I think we do see a little bit of that happening kind of behind the scenes. But something else I think they talk about is that it's kind of a two-way street with the the war because there's something that tells them it's coming. We know that it's about to start, and they start summoning servants. But they also say that the grail doesn't appear until it thinks somebody is worthy for it to show up. Mm. So... The Grail hasn't showed up at this point. Mm-mm. There, There is no sign of it actually being here. Um, they say something ominous like, you know, now that all the servants are here, it will show up. It's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so something that I loved about the structure of the prologue into the first episode is that these two episodes mirror each other. So we had a similar 
episode structure with a show that we watched previously, um, which was Ghost Maiden of Amnesia. And what the prologue and the first episode do is we watch the prologue and it all takes place from Rin's perspective. And then we go into episode one, it shifts towards Shiro's perspective. And so we get to see the same interactions from different perspectives. And we get to see how they encounter the things in their lives and the things that are happening with this war from totally different motivations and totally different drives. And I find that really interesting because it's immediate contrast of these two main characters. And I thought it was a really good way to introduce both of them. Yeah, there were, there were quite a few interesting things they did with episode zero, I guess, the prologue. And by the way, if you're going to watch the show, the prologue is required watching. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that until Colin told me. And now, yes, it is, it is required. It's, it might as well be episode one. Yeah. Um, it is quite different than the rest of the episodes moving forward. Because of that perspective shift. In fact, it kind of sets you up to think Rin is going to be the main character. I was a little sad. Which she's not, unfortunately. <sighs> but what it is doing is it's making itself distinct from the other routes. So it's it's setting up, hey, we're going to be spending the most time with Rin. Mm-hmm. And because we're not a visual novel where the goal is to uh, hit on these girls... It's actually, hey, this person is important to the story, so we're going to spend a lot of time building her character and then kind of introduce you to the whole thing. Uh, Just really quick, I was so shocked to find out that this was based on an adult visual novel because this show has none of it. It is very pleasant. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we'll get to that later, but (laughs) it is 100% stripped of all the sex stuff. Yeah. Uh, which is crazy because yeah. this is a really complex show on its own. I can't yeah. <laughs> imagine adding any of that garbage. Yeah, yeah. So then to talk a little bit more about Rin, um, she is from a powerful line of mages. Her family was mages of some sort. We don't see any of her family. In fact, she seems to have like inherited this huge mansion and that most, she lives in. Yeah, and most of it is boarded up yeah a a lot of like uh you know like sheets over furniture and dust everywhere but it seems that her father left her some like cryptic instructions on here's how you get into this war Mm -hmm. and like really invest the powers that we've taught you Mm -hmm. um and she ends up summoning archer yeah yeah and this duo is really I think important to talk about just in general, a lot of times when we talk about characters, we'll be talking about them in these pairs. Um, And so when you meet Archer, you really actually start to understand who Ren is. Because when you first see her, she just kind of seems like this quiet mage who's very studious. And as soon as Archer comes in and is in some ways kind of a personality clash for her, you really get to see some of her like impulsiveness, some of her strong will, <laughs> and um, also some of her like kindness 
in a lot of ways that you probably wouldn't expect from somebody who's willingly entering into this war to a death match. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I I find their dynamic really interesting because they don't seem like the pairing that's there to be foes or foils of each other, but really to keep each other in check because their motivations are actually in line with each other. And they just realize that, oh, we actually totally want the exact same thing. We're just kind of different about approaching it. And so I think that's a lot of what we're going to see with them is that they're actually very similar, but they're going to rein each other's extremes in. And I think that's what makes them a really strong pairing automatically. Like you see their connection right away and know that they're really in sync with each other. Yeah. So you had said that Rin is strong-willed. Archer is as well. Oh, yes. And he comes off very strong at the beginning of like, you're incompetent. (laughs) I really don't want to be your servant. Like, Mm -hmm. it sucks that I'm here fighting for you of all people. And I'm not really going to listen to you. Yeah. And at the same time, she was mad because she summoned Archer and not Saber. Yeah, she made a mistake with her summoning thing. Yeah, she was trying to, like, line up the right times to to make the summons Mm -hmm. because the only two remaining servants were Saber and Archer. Mm -hmm. And she got Archer and wanted Saber. Yep. Um, And so she's mad that he isn't going to be as good for her in the war. And right off the bat uses a command seal to will him to follow her direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, Archer mentions, you know, you really should be using more specific commands because what you just gave me was super broad. Mm-hmm. And Archer being this guy who is like, um, you have to prove to me that, that you're worthy for me to serve you mm-hmm. uh, and to fight for you. And at that moment when she uses a broad seal and it still is like really powerful on him, he's he's thinking, okay, she actually is pretty powerful. Yeah. And the fact that she would potentially risk her own life by using the seal at a time when she didn't need to. He was like, okay, like I see that like you're somebody that actually cares about this and not not cares about the deathmatch part, but actually cares about like what's happening in this pairing that the two of them have. Right. She is impulsive, but the loyalty was so important to her because she knows that the strategy is more important than than anything. Right. And like we say, these are all powerful mages working together and, you know, fighting this big war. Also, she's a high school student. Like, that kind of goes without saying in anime, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But she is still, like, a normal student, too. Yeah. And in terms of her, like, actual abilities, we see her, like, shooting laser beams out of her hands, basically. Yep. (laughs) Which is pretty cool. She also has a thing with gems or stones. I can't tell what they are, but she she has a lot of them around. She has ones she can throw to mm-hmm. do different effects, or she can, like, crumple them into dust and do stuff with them. Yeah. Yeah, unclear exactly what it does, but she uses those gemstones as well. Yeah. And obviously, like, Archer is uh, a powerful archer. Mm-hmm. 
he can basically stand like on the opposite side of the city and fire these enormous arrows, magical arrows yeah. at enemies. But he's also really good with close combat. Yeah, which is unusual. We see him like um, fighting with two short swords mm-hmm. and he's able to regenerate them, just yes. like pull them out of nowhere when they break or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about, and I don't know how much it's going to come into play, because of the mistake that Rin made while summoning, um, which was actually just a timing thing. She just summoned him at the wrong time. Uh, he ends up losing his memory. He doesn't know who he is inherently. Um, and that's actually really important for the master-servant relationship because that's how they strategize is figuring out like, oh, this is who you were. These are the things that you're really skilled at. Okay, this is how we're going to figure out how to win this war. And because he doesn't know who he is, it seems like that's going to be a barrier in itself. And it's interesting because Rin just takes that in stride and she's just like, hmm, okay, well, let me know if you remember. We'll just figure it out. And he's kind of taken aback by it. He's like, okay, I guess I guess we will. <laughs> so I don't know if that's going to come into play more with him not knowing who he is. So one of uh, the earliest encounters that Rin and Archer have is at her school. They come to find that they they have a feeling that there's another master present at her school. And eventually they run into one of the servants. They haven't yet met who the master of that servant is, but they run into Lancer. And there's basically this huge fight between Lancer and Archer uh, in the school, like, grounds. And at some point during this fight, they notice that somebody else was there. Yep. And that person... Uh, ends up getting chased down by Lancer Mm -hmm. and getting stabbed real bad. Yep. To the point of almost death. Think like Princess Bride almost death. Uh Uh-huh. Mostly dead. And uh, Rin, being the person she is, um, runs up to find this person and realizes it's her classmate that she was familiar with, not necessarily close friends or anything. I think... She was friends with somebody who really admired and cared about him. And this is Emia, our main character. Yep. And uh, she uses something that her father had left her, which is like a a necklace with a, a vial of some sort. I thought it was like a red stone, but yeah, yeah, it's hard to know what it is. Some sort of magical item that she has mm-hmm. to restore what she can to him. And at least save his life. And he he makes it up. He isn't doing too great. And eventually he gets like chased down by Lancer again because he realizes he didn't finish the job. Yep. And that's when Emia summons his own servant. Yeah, he makes it back home and there's already a summoning circle in his garage, which is weird and not explained. Um, but he ends up kind of willing Saber there by accident. She wasn't summoned the way that Archer was summoned by Ren. So, um, 
Do we want to just talk a little bit about Sabre and kind of their relationship? Yeah. Sabre is very different than Archer. She is extremely loyal right from the get-go. She doesn't really ask a whole lot of questions of Emia, and she's pretty powerful, like, on her own. Like, it seems like a lot of the power to the servants is given by the mage's own power, but, man, she herself is super strong. But she, in kind of contrast to Archer, seems very, she's, like, lawful good and very straight-laced, and we haven't really seen much of her personality outside of that. So from what I've seen of the show, I'm going to kind of lean into there'll be more. But there isn't a whole lot right now for her. She she just seems by the book kind of servant. Right. So sort of all we know about her is a few practical things. Like she seems to be European descent mm-hmm. of some sort. And characters talk about that. Yeah. Blonde hair, blue eyes. And Archer has the ability to make himself invisible. So he can kind of follow Ren around quietly and she can go to school and he can still be there Uh, saber isn't able to do that but she does make her sword invisible yeah and they say that she's trying to like conceal her identity as a heroic spirit because if you were able to see her sword you would know who she was yeah or at least you could figure it out right And they don't want the other servants to know who they are because then they can formulate their own plans against them. Yeah, it seems like servant to servant um, or even like master to master, you don't want to reveal who your servant is. Like it'll be pretty obvious if your servant is, you know, saber or berserker, you know, um, that sort of thing. But if you can find out who the heroic spirit actually is, was, then it's easier to figure out, okay, these are probably their weaknesses. These are probably their strengths. And so you can start making a strategy around it. And so she she takes that extra step to make sure that she can't be identified. There are a couple other minor characters we might mention here. Two of them are Sakura and Fujimura. And Fujimura is an English teacher at their school. And she has kind of become a guardian for Shiro because he he has this adoptive father that we don't know much about who passed away at some point. And so she kind of lives with him and makes sure he's taken care of. And Sakura is kind of similar in that after his father passed, she started to help him out with a few things and ends up spending a lot of time there. She's only worth mentioning because she's one of the alternate routes. Mm. So she becomes a little bit more important in those. Um, But we haven't seen a whole lot important from her so far. No, it just seems like she really cares about the main character. And um, one thing we didn't mention, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, The main character was actually in the archery club. Right. And was like really good at it. So in some ways, it kind of feels like he naturally should have been with Archer. But um, she she is also in the archery club and is always trying to convince him to come back to it. 
Yeah, and there are a couple other people in the archery club who are minor characters, but Sakura also has a brother whose name is Shinji. He's the worst. And he is like defo evil, right? He has to be. Um, if for nothing else, he's a total jerk. Yeah, he's he's like at least shown signs of abusing his sister and other mm-hmm. people and manipulating people. Yeah. Um, it's just gross. So he's totally a terrible person. We've mm-hmm. we've yet to see if he's like actually going to be an evil bad guy. Mm-hmm. But he's not great. No. <laughs> so I think we're going to take a quick break and then we'll go into some of the production stuff and kind of some general thoughts. Welcome back to the show. Kayla, would you like to talk about the animation, the art style, the character designs, music, all that kind of stuff? I would. I'd actually like to start with character designs. Okay. Because there's a lot that struck me here is really important uh, right away. Um, So one of the things that I talked about before with the characters, uh, specifically with Rin and Archer, is that... They have pretty different personalities when it comes to being in this war, but their motivations are the same. And that is made pretty apparent by the fact that they are color-coordinated. Even though, like, they look very different from each other, Archer is pretty tan and has this very, like, white hair, and Rin is pretty pale with this black hair. So, like, down to who they are, they're pretty different, but their clothing is actually really similar. They both wear a lot of reds and blacks and golds. Um, And I think that just shows that alignment very easily, that they actually are very unified and, in a sense, almost wearing like a uniform, like a team uniform. That's that's how almost similar that they look. And, And this is kind of shown... At first, I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was like, oh, maybe the servants just take on you know, kind of the look of their master. But when you see Emiya and Saber, they don't match. Uh, Saber is wearing a lot of blues and silvers, uh, and Emiya's just wearing, like, his normal clothes. It's like their school uniforms are weird. They're kind yeah. of like a, a just tan yeah. kind of jacket mm-hmm. and pants. Yep. Yep, they're not... They're not remarkable in any way. Which, I don't know how Rin gets away with wearing what she does, but anime. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's something that might play out more, or at least would be cool if they did, is as Emmy and Saber kind of align or don't, that their clothing would either start to resemble one another or they'd break apart. They'd start to become opposites. And so I... I find it just very interesting that you can see just immediately how close Ren and Archer are by the way that they are dressed. Yeah, it's interesting when you're talking about comparing the servant to the master, too. There are some pairs that are especially different. 
um, Berserker being the biggest one, uh, he gets paired with like basically a little girl. Yep. Which, and he's basically a big, big, huge rage monster. Mm-hmm. Overall, I'd say the designs of the servants are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe with the exception of Lancer, he's like a little bit derpy mm-hmm. and just kind of wears like weird blue armor. Mm-hmm. I think it's just hard to understand exactly what a Lancer would be sure. other than maybe our sort of like European idea of like almost jousting. Mm-hmm. I think is kind of where I'm struggling with that. <laughs> right. But there, there's such a big variation in the way that all the servants are presented and the kinds of clothes they wear because of the eras they come from and mm-hmm. and the types of weapons they use. Um, I think all those designs are really interesting. Yeah, we get to see, I think we get to see all of the servants in the intro, mm-hmm. at least. I think so. I was kind of like trying to mentally calibrate it. Yeah. So... Some of them you can't outright place like, oh, that's the writer or whatever. Yeah. But you can kind of make guesses. Yeah. Some of them are, you know, fairly obvious. Like, Caster looks very much like a sorcerer, you know, in the whole cloak Levitating thing. Levitating and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty obvious. But some of the other ones are a little harder to discern. It's sort of just by, you know, process of elimination, figuring out which ones are which. Uh, in terms of some of our main characters, too, um, Shiro isn't quite your typical main character design. He's got kind of short, spiky red hair, which is not quite the like typical brown main character hair. But also, he's like weirdly ripped, yeah, which they show a few times. And although he's like basically not talented at anything, he um, does spend a lot of time like training and practicing. He just doesn't improve very quickly. No. It seems like the only thing he was skilled at was archery. Right. Because that's something that they talk about, yeah. is that he was, like, the best one. I do think his the form of magic that he does is interesting, mm-hmm. um, which is he does strengthening magic. Yes. So he can take, like, uh, a piece of metal, and he can improve its characteristics to make it a stronger metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that helps him, like, he can look into a, a, an object and kind of figure out what its structure is made of and, and how its components are put together. And he uses that basically to, like, repair stuff at school. And that's about the best he can do. Yeah, he's not remarkable when it comes to mage work. Right. Uh, what do you think of Saber's design? I love her design. Um, I immediately have an idea of who I think she is. She doesn't reveal who she is. Um, but just given her attire, she wears this blue dress um, that's kind of big and poofy. But she also has this armor that she wears over it. Um, very English style, you know, knight armor almost. Um I, th- I think she might be like a Joan of Arc kind of person, mm. but that's yet to be revealed. Yeah. If that's her. I could be wrong. Man, I hope someday we get to Fate Zero because she wears like a full three-piece suit and rides a motorcycle in that. Oh, dang. And it's great. Oh, dang. 
all right, well, you know what? <laughs> no, and, and I think a lot of the way that she looks really says a lot about her. Um, it's it's interesting because she is still very feminine, but she is super strong, crazy strong. Um, but even in sort of her, like, day-to-day attire, it's still very, like, prim and proper and straight-laced. So it's it's interesting um, how much of herself that, you know, you can see in just how she dresses. Well, Kayla, I am very excited to talk about the animation for this show. Would you like to get us kicked off with a conversation about that? Yes. It's so good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's right from the beginning um, in the prologue. Right when we're meeting Rin and watching her summon who she thinks is Saber but ends up being Archer. You see all these details in her home that's just very interesting. Like just in the background of it, just how important all of it is. Because she's like moving stuff around. She's kind of in this attic space that's full of all these old books and um, notes and things like that. And you see all of it. There's a lot of stuff that's on the screen. You actually see her, like, moving things out of the way. Um, And there's just so much detail, even in the background of of the show. Like, everything has a lot of detail. It all feels very real. Without feeling cluttered, it's not like everything has all this detail and it feels very busy. It it just feels very real. And there was a part in particular that she's doing her summon and the camera angle shifts and it goes into this 3D perspective and it's so seamless. Like you can tell it definitely moved from a 2D to a 3D kind of animation, but but it looked the same. Like she didn't suddenly look like she was rendered out of a computer the way that we've talked about in other animations where it becomes like, this was hand-drawn and now suddenly, now it definitely looks like it came from a computer. You can tell that there's computer animation just because of the shift, but it all still feels the same. Yeah, like we don't know a whole lot about animation styles and the different ways that things are made, but if I had to guess, like, it kind of looks a little bit like the Guilty Gear games that I've talked about before, mm. where everything is actually constructed in polygons with 3D models, and it's just shaded in such a way that it looks two-dimensional. And then when those uh, perspective shifts happen, then you realize that it's all in 3D the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it works that way in an animation of this caliber, Uh, where everything is linear, but if nothing else, like, they have taken the the individual frames for the more 2D kind of scenes, and they've computer colored them, they've post-processed in such a way that it has the same kind of shine to it, you know, the the package looks the same, while still maintaining its, its sharpness as a 2D image, and they've made the transitions into the 3D really seamless and impressive and 
one of the most impressive things is the fight scenes. Yeah, they're, like, really well done. There's obviously, like, a really high level of choreography going on that's pretty impressive. These fights aren't necessarily drawn out. We're not talking about a Michael Bay movie where a <laughs> fight scene is two hours of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but they make the fight scenes really count. Yeah. There's not characters sitting there staring at each other for 10 minutes. No, it's happening so fast, but very cleanly. Um, and I think it's it's a combination of everything. There's really impressive effects and camera work and that on top of the sound design making everything have really huge impact. Um, they just feel really good and they're really impressive to watch. Um, so you just mentioned the sound design. I think that's something I would really love to touch on because this show does have a lot of magic in it. Something I really appreciated about the show is that You've talked before about how if something appears on screen, it has to have sound. I think I think something that this show does really well is that it takes the right sound. So for the most part, when they're using magic, the summoning of magic doesn't necessarily have the sound. It's whatever they're doing with it. So if they're putting the magic on something, if they're shooting it at something, if they're doing something with it, that's where the magic actually takes sound it doesn't just like sit there in their hand or like have a twinkly sound or something um i think they did a really good job of giving the magic real placement and real impact like you said because the magic that's being used is rarely a small feat um you know we see with the main character a little bit he's kind of like channeling uh, his magic to like look at certain components or something like that. And even that has this sort of, well, he calls it a trace, but that that's sort of what it is. It feels like it's moving across whatever surface that the magic is actually moving across, which I think that those are really good sound design choices, is that it isn't something made up, that it's something that makes sense in the world. His magic almost seems technical in a sense it's like this energy like an electricity moving through circuits Mm -hmm. in and so the sound design kind of reflects that it feels electrical and it feels like there's buzzing and the sort of mechanical energy to it yeah and and the sound design works i think in a way that feels tangible to our world and not something outside of it i think a lot of times you know, we kind of think of like the Tinkerbell sounds, you know, with magic that feel outside of our world. It feels like something like fairies and pixies and, you know, and that sort of thing. And this feels very rooted in the world that they're in. And it feels like, yeah, maybe I'm just one of those people who doesn't know that there's mages out there, you know, that it sort of has that kind of feel to it. We sort of have like a an offshoot relation to this production studio which is that we at one point watched a show called token rambu which is about sword boys who get summoned via cards it was weird yep there is uh we had mentioned on that episode an offshoot that is produced by ufo table which is the same company who did fate stay night 
uh, at least the Un- Unlimited Blade Works, and they have like a dark fantasy version of the same concept. And we watched like a few minutes of that, and it looked crazy. Crazy good. It yeah. looked amazing. It's like they could take that dumb concept and actually turn it into something cool. Yeah, it looked like a totally different show. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like it was basing it off of the same material. Same characters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if I had anything to say about the music, um, this is a, a score that I think is similar to some that we've seen before, which is it's kind of good that you don't notice it so often. They pick pieces and they construct scenes in such a way that uh, doesn't distract you. There are times when you notice it where it feels really good, and there are times when you don't notice it, but if it were missing, it would be missing something huge. Um, And I think the way that they do that is something that I read, which was pretty interesting, and I'll just read this as a quote. There were more than 400 compositions for the entire Unlimited Blade Works soundtrack, which significantly exceeded the average figure for a 24-episode anime series, which normally would range around 40 to 50 tracks. Jeez. Uh, so, you know, tripling, quadrupling the number of compositions that you would ordinarily put in a show of this length. Mm-hmm. The effort that they went to to individually piece out every scene is very evident in this show. Yeah, definitely. And we've mentioned it before, I think on our Origins episode when we actually talked about this show before, is that the fan base kind of jokingly refers to this as unlimited budget works. Yep. It's very evident. Yeah. When you watch the show, you'll see why it's called that. Mm-hmm. So, Colin, do you have any general thoughts about the show that we haven't talked about yet? So kind of related to how I just mentioned that we've talked about the show before, it is worth noting that I have seen this show in its entirety, uh, which is the first time that's happened for one of our roles on the podcast. Um, and it's it's something that I've kind of had in the watch list for a while of like, one day I'll show this to Kayla because I think <laughs> it's great. Um, so I'm not... You know, I'm definitely not hiding my preferences here and saying that I really enjoy this show and I've had a great experience going back and watching it because there's some crazy stuff that's going to happen eventually. Oh, great. And knowing everything now and seeing it again and getting to see all of those pieces coming together is actually really exciting. Overall, I'm, I'm just impressed by everything the show tries to do and it does it exceedingly well. The story setup and the pacing of the story beats as they're coming up is really great. It keeps the story moving without dragging, um, without weighing it down with too much garbage. The characters are deep and interesting, and they're actually making like substantial moral decisions. And the fighting is rad, and the production values are basically the best there is. And this is something you touched on earlier, which is... All of this is made even that much more impressive by the fact that this is based off of an eroge, which doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. (laughs) That they were able to take out all of the sex, 100% of it, and 
they're left with this thing that is incredibly popular, very deep, very detailed, and really highly produced and enjoyable. Yeah, I think that's something that was really surprising for me because I think a lot of times when we think of these adult visual novels, we either find a complete lack of story or a complete lack of characters, and we have both. Um, so I didn't go into this knowing that there was a, an adult visual novel. Um, that came as a surprise later. Um, I actually think you told me, like, on in the car, like, on a road trip that we were on. Um, but it, it's, I don't know if that's something that they added, you know, to actually make it a good story or if it was really there underneath. And that's incredible that a game of that caliber, of that nature, would have so much behind it. But um, something that, I went into not having the experience. I knew kind of what the show was, basically just that it was a show that was done really well because they had a lot of money to throw at it and make it something really cool. So I went in just knowing at least that the animation was going to look really good. Um, so I didn't really know how the characters or the story or anything like that were going to play out. And so I'm pretty skeptical when it comes to, like, action, anything, you know, movies or anime or anything, because I often find that I don't relate to the characters very much, or I don't care about their motivations, or I just find them bland in general. And I didn't find that at all with these characters. I actually found that I cared a lot about their motivations. Maybe because their motivations aren't, I want to murder everything. They're actually, you know, sort of conflicted about what they're doing and the choices that they're going to have to make. And I can see that there's a lot of wrestling that goes on with that. I also find it so interesting that they take what really could have been thrown away characters, these servants, that they could have just been instruments to be used, and they make them real rounded characters um maybe that's not true with some of the other servants you know like lancer or characters we haven't gotten to spend much time with but at least with archer and saber they are whole characters unto themselves they can be seen as separate from their masters even though they are so closely linked and it's so important to know those dynamics between those characters but I care just as much about them as I do about the masters the masters aren't the only characters that matter they aren't the only motivators that matter and I think that's really neat that we have this ensemble cast and I can care about all of them so equally because I find a lot of times with ensemble casts there's inevitably a character or two that I'm just sort of like, eh, you know, I don't really mind if they show up or don't. And I really care about each of these characters quite a bit. And so I think that's something that can be hard to do. It can be hard to have so many characters 
that you care about. And knowing that there's other routes, knowing that there's other characters that we would focus on makes me think like, okay, there's even more rounded characters that I either haven't met yet or that I just haven't like really gotten to spend that time with them because the focus is so much on on the relationship between these two. And yeah, I'm I'm really impressed with the characters and with the way that their story is being played out. Um, it's good stuff. So with all that being said, would you watch more of this show? Okay. I would. I should also preface that we have. <laughs> um, we didn't wait very long before we started watching more episodes. Uh, like you said, you had already seen some of them. And I... Man, I was ready to go. Um, I I was a I did kind of stumble a little bit between the prologue and the first episode because, man, I really wanted it to be about Rin. I fell in love with her and Archer immediately, and to find out it wasn't predominantly about them kind of made me sad. But um, I have really been enjoying the series, so I haven't finished it. I will. I will finish it. Yeah, soon, hopefully. Yeah, we've made it through 12 episodes so far. (laughs) Sorry, we've kind of uh, fooled you into thinking we had only watched two up to this point, but (laughs) we uh, withheld details that we know ahead of time. Yes, yes. So we only covered the first two. Yeah. Um, Yeah, likewise, I'm going to keep watching this again through (laughs) to the end. And like part of that is just getting to experience you like... (laughs) <laughs> seeing all these things un- unravel and mm-hmm. knowing what I know and going, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's been enjoying me trying to figure out what's going to happen and who's who and what's what. <laughs> so if anything, for this question of would I watch more of it, it's more like, so when are we going to watch Fate Zero? <laughs> yeah. Which I will briefly mention is also exciting because we had talked about on our Origins episode that you were really into a director named Jin Irobuchi. Yes. And he is responsible for Monica Magica and Psychopaths and really interesting like psych thrillers kind of like that. Yep. And he's actually the the writer for Fate Zero. <laughs> so like as much as people love Unlimited Blade Works, mm-hmm. there is an overwhelming love for Fate Zero even more so. I'm excited. So uh, that'll be fun as well. I'm excited. All right. This sadly closes this out for this episode. Um, But if you want to learn more about our show, you can visit our website at anamonday.moe. That's anamonday.moe. And you can send us questions and comments to podcast at anamonday.moe. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our username is anamondaycast. And you can find links for that on our website. Thank you so much to Crunchyroll for all of the anime that you provide and for the random button which produces these wonderful and wonderfully terrible results. If you want to follow along with us each week, we'll have a link to the current title on our website and social media so that you can watch what we're watching. Finally, thanks to C2A for providing the intro and outro music for our show, which come from the Senpai EPs available on his Bandcamp and other streaming services like Spotify. All right, are you ready to roll? I'm ready. Random button in three, two, one. Uh, possibly an appropriate choice for Father's Day. Okay.
This show is called, and I quote, Listen to me, girls. I'm your father. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm not on board with this. <laughs> Just cross the board. Uh, the first episode is called Don't Call Me Daddy. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Dramatic shift from last week. Mm. Nope. <laughs> I'm not on board. Great. Good stuff. Ugh. Gross. <laughs> Ugh. I don't have enough disapproval noises. <laughs> well... I guess we'll see if you can come up with any new ones. Oh, I'm sure I will. We'll <laughs> just record me watching the show. All right. I think that's going to do it for us this week. What a sad departure. <laughs> I know. Hope you all have a better week than we will. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Open the door for a minute. Yes. It's so warm. Baggins. Hi, puppy. Hey, buddy. Do you want to come and be recorded? Yeah? Do you want to come and be recorded? Do you want to be in our show? You're giving me tilty heads. That doesn't answer my question. When are we getting that fan? <laughs> How much is the fan? 100 bucks. Can I ask that for my birthday? Yeah. <laughs>